the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, was one of the most magnificent buildings in the ancient world. It was this massive building built on one of the tallest mountains in the area. And most would say that even the palace of Herod himself couldn't compare with the splendor of this temple. The courtyard extended about 14 or covered about 14 acres, was surrounded by this massive wall. And in the midst of this courtyard uh, stood what we know as the sanctuary or the holy place. And uh, it was this magnificent looking building, even from the outside. And what you saw in the first part of that video was this 3D rendition of that building. This was the temple that Jesus would have went to. This is the temple that Jesus would have been taken to when he was eight days old. This is the temple where Jesus would have sat and he would have watched the widow bring one coin and put one coin in the offering and put to shame people who brought way more in the offering. This was the temple that Jesus would drive out the money changers for. And this was the temple that every Jew would worship at and every Jew would bring their sacrifice to. And you see, for these folks, the temple was not just a building. It was really the center of everything. It was the center of their community. It was their center of their, their uh, practical life and also the center of their theological life. It was their connection point to God. And this was the place that if you were going to connect with God, it had to be here. And so this place, this, this one building, represented more than just a building. It represented how they connected with God. See, if you were going to seek God's forgiveness, you had to do it at the temple. If you were going to seek God's blessings, you had to do it at the temple. You couldn't do it at home. You couldn't do it online. Uh, you couldn't do it anywhere else. It had to be in this one place. And so this place was their contact between the Almighty God Himself and them. And so this temple uh, really became invaluable in their system of belief because this was the one place where you could connect and communicate with God. But as you saw at the end of that video, this beautiful temple that was built is no longer standing. In fact, you saw that video. If you were to visit Israel today, the only part of any of that that is still standing is the western wall or the wailing wall. And it's not really even part of the temple itself. It's really kind of part of the retaining wall that was built to, to build the structure on. And, and so Jews today will gather at this sacred place not to worship, not to do sacrifices. They join in this, this one place for one purpose, to weep and to mourn. And they're not just weeping and mourning the loss of their temple. They're really weeping and mourning the loss of their relationship with God. Because without the temple, they don't have that connection with God. They don't have a place to go. They don't have this connection point. And so without the temple, without this sanctuary, they really do have no reason for joy. You see, none of you are going to go to Israel. None of you are going to walk into the, or at the Western Wall. None of you are going to have that experience of seeing people do what we just did. Sing about how great God is and sing about how wonderful God is and sing about the mercies and joy of God. None of that happens at the Western Wall. It is only weeping and only mourning. There is no joy there because there is no connection there with God. And so they have no reason for joy. They only have reason for sorrow and for mourning. And so one of the interesting things about God's timing is that it is always perfect. It's perfect in your life. It's perfect in my life. It's perfect even 2,000 years ago. And here's the reason I'm telling you that. Because when the writer of Hebrews was sitting down to write this letter, that temple that you saw at the beginning, that temple was standing. And it was beautiful, and it was magnificent, and it had just finally been put the finishing touches on, and everything was just as it was supposed to be. And it lasted for about three, maybe five years. 
And then the Romans came in and destroyed every part of it. They didn't leave one stone setting on top of another. And so this magnificent building that represented their connection with God was suddenly destroyed. And the, the writer of Hebrews, three to five years before that happened, was writing to this group of Jews that he knew was going to be heartbreaking. He knew this was going to crush them theologically and spiritually. And he's preparing them in chapter 9, which is where we're going to be this morning, He's preparing them by pointing them to this greater sanctuary, this sanctuary that far exceeds the splendor and the purpose uh, of this deeply cherished temple and sanctuary they had. And so uh, if if uh, if you're looking at me, and and don't tune me out, because some of us are looking at chapter 9, we're like, well, I'm not Jewish. I don't have any connection to the temple. I've never been to the temple. None of that applies to me. Then don't tune me out, because I want to share with you, there's more in this passage than just the temple that is just this place. All right? And so I want you to follow along with me. We're going to start in chapter 9, start in verse 1. We're going to read down through verse 14. And we're going to see that this temple of theirs, uh, if we're not careful, really kind of comes our picture of a temple and our connection as God as well. All right? So I want you to read with me chapter 9, starting in verse 1. It says, Now the first covenant also had regulations for ministry and an earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was set up, and in the first room, which is called the holy place, were the lampstand, the table, and the presentation loaves. Behind the second curtain, the temple was called the most holy place, or excuse me, the tabernacle was called the most holy place. It contained the gold altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, covered with gold on all sides, in which there was the gold jar containing the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the, co- of the covenant. The cherubim of glory were above it, overshadowing the mercy seat. It's not possible to speak about these things in detail right now. Verse 6. With these things set up this way, the priest entered the first room repeatedly, performing their ministries. But the high priest alone enters the second room, and he does this only once a year and never without blood which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. Verse 8, the Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the holy place had not yet been disclosed when the first tabernacle was still standing. This is a symbol of the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshiper's conscience. They are physical regulations and only deal with food, drink, and various washings imposed until the time of restoration. Verse 11, But the Messiah has appeared, high priest of the good things that have come in a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with, with hands. That is not of this creation. He entered the most holy place once for all, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls And the ashes of a young cow sprinkled those who were defiled, sanctified for the purification of their flesh. How much more were the blood of the Messiah, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Let's pray together. Father, thank You so much that You have made a way God, not into a building, but into Your presence itself. God, thank You so much that You have opened the doors and opened the gates. And God, You have opened up access to Yourself because of what Your Son Jesus did for us. Because of the sacrifice that He went through and the sacrifice that He made. 
God, I pray this morning that as we work through this text, God, I pray that we don't just see a Jewish temple thousands of years ago, but God, I pray that this is a time and a moment for us to reflect in our own relationship with You and whether we are connected to things or connected to You, Father. And so, God, I pray that You will speak. And God, I pray that we give this time solely to You. God, to be in Your presence, to hear Your words this morning. And God, I pray that You speak to us in an amazing way that overwhelms us and shows us Your grace and Your mercy and Your love for each one of us, Father. God, I pray that You speak, and I pray that we're obedient to listen, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. About three years ago, my wife and I decided that we were going to uh, buy a camper. We thought it would be a great idea for our family, that we could spend some quality family time, we could travel around. And, uh, so we, we needed um, uh, some certain things with a camper. Because of our family size, it had to sleep so many people. Because my truck is what it is, it could only weigh so much. And, um, and so because we had a budget, it could only cost so much. And So we were kind of um, a salesperson worst nightmare. Maybe we were like everybody else because... We wanted the sleeping capacity of a huge camper, but the weight of a tiny camper for the price of a tent is what we wanted, okay? That, that's what we were looking for. And so we, um, we went to several camping lots and looked at some campers. And it was kind of fun, almost jokingly, because we knew all this was happening. And, and we knew that with those requirements, our, our options were going to be very limited. There were not very many makes and models that we could explore. And we knew that. And so it was kind of fun when you walk up to a camper lot and the salesman meets you there in one of those vultures that's like circling ready to sell you the first biggest one that you can't afford. And so they, you walk up to them and you're like, all right, so here's what we have. We need this, we need this, and we need that. And then you could just kind of look at their face and they're like, oh. And then you can kind of see them like scanning their lot and be like, mm, maybe that one? I'm not even sure that one's going to work for you. Let's go check that one and maybe that one's going to work. And, and so we would go look at that one. And so we did a lot of our shopping in places, but we also did a lot of our shopping online. You, and and I'm, not, I'm not a like buy it online without looking at it kind of guy. And so like when I say shopping online, like we would look at possibilities and if they were there, then we'd go look at them. So we found one. Uh, that it was a used camper. I mean, we were all excited about it. It met the, the space we needed. It met the weight requirements we needed. The only thing we didn't know was the budget part of it because they don't publish that part online. They sucker you into coming if you want the real number. So we, but we were excited about this one. It, was, it seemed to be what we needed, what we wanted. And so we, it was not too far from here. So we went there, honestly expecting to look at this used camper. And we, were, we really thought this, if the price was right, this was going to be the one that we were going to come home with. And so we walked up there and we told the sales lady that, hey, we saw this camper online. Could we look at it? And she said, yeah, absolutely. And she said, why are you looking at this one? So we gave our requirements and she's like, oh, well, so I'll let you look at that one. I also have another used one right beside it that, that is very similar in what you're looking for, probably can meet your requirements. And she said, but I also have, I also have a new one. And it may do what you need it to do as well. And so in my mind, I'm thinking, well, let's start where, where, we, where we came in here for. So we, we went, we looked at the older ones, the used ones. There were two of them. And uh, we walked in the first one, and after she showed us the features of it, and we noticed some of the things were, there was some stuff that was loose on it, and there was actually some stuff that was hanging from the ceiling. And we're like, I'm not a camper expert, but I'm pretty sure that's not supposed to be hanging down. There's pieces that look like they were missing on it. And again, like, I'm not a camper expert, but I'm just pretty sure that if you have a curtain, it's supposed to be at the top of the wall instead of the bottom of the wall and so at least I knew that part and so we walked around and I said okay so let's talk price of this one 
And so she said, all right, well, let me tell you, this is the price of this camper. And she said, but while you're here, do you want to take a look at this new one? And in my mind, I'm thinking, if that's the price of this one, then we really, uh, I don't know why we want to look at the new one, because if that's the price of this used one, the new one is way out of our ballpark. And so I said, well, you know, while we're here, why not? All right, we, we drove this way, we might as well look at it. And so she takes us to this new camper, walks us around the outside of it, and then she walks us inside, and we walk in, and everything is spotless. Everything is exactly, there, there's no curtains laying on the floor, there are no extra holes that shouldn't be there, there's nothing loose, nothing jiggling, and, and everything at least looks like it is exactly what it's supposed to be. And so then, I said, all right, this one looks nice, but I'd probably know this is way out of where we're at budget-wise. And she said, well, actually, and I'm going to be honest with you, this is probably a great sales tactic, and if it worked like a charm for us, but actually... Because of deals and discounts on this new one, it's actually the same price as the one you just looked at. And I said, whoa, wait a second. You're telling me that I got two options on this lot right now, which was astounding to me because not many lots did we have two options on. But I had two options. One that I came in for that was falling apart and had some struggles and had some heartache to it and looked like it had some wear and tear to it. And then I've got this spotless brand new one. And you're telling me that they really do price-wise compare to each other. And she said, yeah, they really do. And so I was left with this choice. We could take the older one that had some problems and some difficulties, or we could spend the same amount of money with a new one that had a warranty that if something fell off, I'm taking that puppy back, all right? And so for me, when I put those two side by side, when I had all the information together, and I put those two campers that were options side by side, one of them was very clearly the winner. One of them was very clearly the, the better choice that we needed to pick and we need to go with. And so... I tell you that story not to, to uh, tell you about our camping experience, but really I love that this is what the writer of Hebrews does. It's because over and over and over again through the book of Hebrews, what he's doing is he's taking Jesus and he's putting him side by side lots of different things, comparing him to the religious system that some of the, his readers grew up in. Right? And he says, look, you can, you can take what you've got or you can take Jesus. You can't take both and you can't have both. You can't afford both, even if you wanted to. You can't have both. But let's just look at them side by side. Let's put the two together. And, and just apples for apples, let's compare these two. And when you do that, you're going to find that there really isn't a comparison. You're going to find that there, there's really such an obvious difference between what Jesus has to offer and what this Jewish system or really what any system or any religion or any option to get into God really has to offer. And so he's done this several times. He started with Abraham, he started with the law, and then he went through the priesthood of Christ, and he, he compared the priesthood of Christ with the priests of Israel. And then we get to chapter 9, and he does the same thing. He lines up this comparison between the sanctuary of Israel, between the temple and the tabernacle, and the sanctuary that Jesus serves in, this heavenly sanctuary. And when he puts these two side by side, he says there's some, there's some comparisons. There's some things that you need to see why one is clearly superior to the other. And so he lines these two up. And he, when he does this, he says there's really three areas of comparison that he wants us to look at. And the first area is the one of the sanctuaries is earthly, all right? It is physical, but the other one is heavenly. It is kind of spiritual. So the temple of Israel, it is here. It is on earth. It is physical. You could see it at this point. At that point when he was writing, you could see it. You could touch it. You could go to it. You could visit. You could even rub the gold on the walls and be amazed by it. 
But it wasn't all that there was. You see, there's this other sanctuary that's invisible to us that we don't see in this time. It's heavenly and it's spiritual in nature. And so he lines these two up and he says, look at these two options. And then he starts telling you about the first option. The first option, he starts really in the first five verses. And he, he kind of gives us some great detail about this earthly sanctuary. I want you to look at the very first verse with me. In verse 1, he says, Now the first covenant also had regulations for ministry and an earthly sanctuary. Right, so we, we talked last week about this idea of a covenant, that it's a promise, it's an agreement between two parties. In this case, he's referring to uh, the agreement between God and Moses and, and the people of Israel. And he says there's this agreement, and this agreement established the laws. Right? It established certain commands. It established certain things that you need to follow. It also, that, allows, uh, the, that agreement established the priesthood and established the tabernacle and the temple and established all these rules and regulations, uh, but they're all earthly rules and regulations. Right? So there's all kinds of these things that happen in the earthly sanctuary, and it was all built according to God's plan. And then he starts in verse 2, really kind of giving us some details about the things that happen or the things that were in the sanctuary. So in verse 2 through 5, he starts telling you what's inside of this sanctuary, some of these sacred items that are part of their worship. In verse 2, he says, For a tabernacle was set up, and in the first room was called the holy place, where the lampstand and the table and the presentation loaves. Now, for some of you, you might be familiar with the tabernacle or the temple and the setup that it was there. And uh, for some of you, it may not, you may not be as familiar with it. But the tabernacle was just an older version of the temple when they were moving. It was a, it was a, a sanctuary for them made out of a tent. And then when they became permanent, when they established their land, Solomon built this temple. And it was designed the exact same way. All right? So it had the same features, same structures, and all of it in there. Except it wasn't made by tents. It was actually a physical structure that didn't move around anymore, right? And so whether you were in the tent or whether you were in the, the temple itself, the sanctuary contained two rooms. The first room that you could go in was the holy place, right? And he tells you that it contained certain things. It contained a lampstand, it contained a table, and it contained the, the uh, loaves of presentation. There are always 12 loaves of table, or excuse me, 12 loaves of bread on this table, and they call it the show bread, right? Two stacks each is having six loaves of bread. And when I say loaves of bread, it's not the white sandwich bread that you and I eat, okay? This is the flat bread, the pita kind of stuff, right? The unleavened stuff. And so there were always 12 of them placed in there, six in this stack and six on that stack, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the goal of these was to remind the priests and the people uh, that, that God was the resource and the source of Israel's life and nourishment. Right? So that was what the first room was. And then in verse 3, he moves a little deeper into the sanctuary and he goes to the second room. In verse 3, he says, behind the second curtain, the tabernacle was called the most holy place. So you got the holy place in the first room, the most holy place in the second room. Some of you may have referred to that as the holy of holies, or you may have it described that way. Right? Then he goes on in verse 4 and 5 to tell you what is in this room. And this room is smaller. It's only 15 by 15, as opposed to the, the bigger holy place. This one's a little smaller, about half. But in verse 4, he says, this room, it contains the gold altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant, containing, or excuse me, covered with gold on all sides, in which are the gold jar containing the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Right? This is the Ark of the Covenant. It was actually just that. It was this golden box uh, that it was so holy to them that it couldn't be touched. 
In fact, even the priests themselves didn't really touch it. There was these long golden poles that when they moved from one place to another, they touched the poles. And that's how they carried it from one place to another. And so uh, there's these three things that are inside of this golden box that remind them of things in the past. And this is the Ark of the Covenant. Right? If you're an Indiana Jones fan... This is what he's been looking for for a really long time, right? In fact, it is still be, there are still lots of folks looking for it because no one knows where it's at even to this day. All right, now there's all kinds of theories, all kinds of treasure hunters out there. But in this day, this was what was in there. And he goes on in verse 5, uh, and he tells us that there's more than just this box. In verse 5, he says, The cherubim of glory were above it, overshadowing the mercy seat. Now, the mercy seat to them is the throne of God. This is God's presence. This is where God resides. This is His mercy seat. Right? Then he goes on and he finishes verse 5, and he says, it's not possible to speak about these things in detail right now. And, and this is, I love this writer because I can almost hear his passion. Like I can almost hear him getting excited about all this stuff that's in this sanctuary. And then he has to pause. He's like, but listen, I can't tell you everything right now. There, there's more to this story, and, and this is why I love him, because I, this, is what I, this is what happens to me, and you guys know this, every Sunday and every Wednesday, like, there's more to this, I just can't tell you it all right now, right? And so I, I can feel his excitement, but I, I guess that his excitement, this is, this is me, I think his excitement is not about the stuff in the sanctuary. I, I think that he doesn't want to go into detail about the, the golden lampstand, how it has this many arms on, how it's made with this gold. I, I don't think he wants to tell you about the dimensions of the table that's there. I don't think he really wants to give you the, the dimensions and the measurements of all these things, partly because they already knew those. You could go back in the Old Testament and read those, but I really think he, he wants to give you more about these because what he really wants to tell you is that every one of these items was not for themselves. They were to point you to something else. They were to point you to Jesus. They were to point you to this better priest who serves in a better sanctuary. And I believe that, that he, he brings this point up to us when he says this in verse 11, right? And so he says in verse 11, yeah, there's this sanctuary, but in verse 11 he says, But the Messiah, being Jesus, has appeared, the high priest of the good things that have come, in the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is not of this creation. So the comparison here is clear. On this side, you have this, this earthly tabernacle that is made by human hands. It is made under direction and in the order of God, but it is made by human hands. And I'm going to be honest with you, this tabernacle is magnificent. It is beautiful. There is gold and there are shiny objects and there is, there is great stuff in this tabernacle. But then the reminder is, it's just stuff. Because it looks good, and it's shiny, and it's beautiful, but that's here. But there's this other sanctuary, on the other hand, that is heavenly. And there's this other sanctuary, on the other hand, that wasn't made by humans. There's this other sanctuary, on this other hand, that, that doesn't fit in this world because it's not made of this world. and means that it's not deteriorating like the rest of this world is. There's this sanctuary over here that's not going to be made by human hands, so therefore it cannot be destroyed by human hands. There's this sanctuary over here that, that, that doesn't have the gold, or has all the gold, but it doesn't have the corrosion and the tarnishing that that sanctuary has. And so it's not going to decay. It's not going to fall apart. And so when you look at something that is maybe beautiful at the time, but going to fall apart and going to be destroyed versus one that is going to last for all eternity, the choice is kind of obvious, right? 
Why wouldn't we go with one that's going to be enduring? Why wouldn't we go with the one where God actually is versus just the symbols of where God is? Why wouldn't we go with the one who's never going to be destroyed and wasn't made by human hands? Obviously, we would go that way. And that's his question. Why wouldn't you go with the greater and superior one? Now, I want to pause in this part because there's a great application for you and for me that I'm afraid if we just read there and we just stop there, we're really going to miss how this passage speaks to you and me. And here's where this passage speaks to us. Because there are a lot of us who have settled for this sanctuary. Yeah, we say we want that sanctuary, but we've settled for this one. Why? Because there's some gold and shiny things in this sanctuary. There's some beauty in this sanctuary. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not talking about the, this sanctuary that we're in right now because there is, there's obviously not gold covering the walls. There's not a gold box up here. There's not gold lampstands. And I don't know if there's any gold in this building at all. All right? I, I don't know that. So I'm not talking about the physical aspect of this building that we're drawn to this. But I'm going to tell you that some of us have got lost in the glitter of the shiny stuff that we forgot that all that stuff was just stuff. And it was actually pointing us to something else. Here's what I mean. It is completely possible for some of you and for some of us, and I'll include myself, to walk in or to join us online and to be overwhelmed by some awesome music, to stand up and to sing some awesome songs because the words are on the screen and yet totally miss the connection with God that we were supposed to make. It is completely possible for you to be here this morning with your Bible open or joined online with your Bible open, sitting down, reading the Scriptures, listening to this guy talk about the temple, to even learn something about the temple. And you may even be taking notes. But you got lost in the glitter and the gold because you never once connected with the God that this was supposed to point you to. You see, it is completely possible for you to serve God, to be on 15 teams and five different committees and teach two different Bible studies. It is completely to do all of that and yet completely miss the, the, the beauty of it all. You see, the truth is, the sanctuary was never meant to be the treasury or the treasure. It was to point you to a bigger treasure. Let me make it a little more personal for you. It is completely possible to take your Bible, read God's Word, and yet completely be out of God's connection. It is completely possible for you to go home this afternoon and get ready to have your wonderful lunch with your family, stand up and say a blessing, and never talk to God once. You see, we get lost in the gold. We get lost in the shiny stuff without looking to what that stuff is really supposed to point us to. You see, His point... And telling us about this lampstand was not to tell us about a lampstand. It's to tell us the lampstand is to point us to the light of the world. The point of that bread in that, in that sanctuary was not bread. It was to point us to the bread of life. The point of the altar was not to remind us of an altar. It was to remind us to the, the sin that we committed and the sacrifice that it took to get us to the holy place. And the point of the mercy seat was to remind us there is only one place where you're going to find mercy and forgiveness. But we got too busy looking at the stuff and we forgot to, the one, to look at the one that the stuff was pointing us to. And for some of us, I'm going to be honest with you, we've taken the good stuff, the shiny stuff, the beautiful stuff that church has to offer and that religion has to offer, and we made it the main thing. And God's point is that it was never meant to be the main thing. He was meant to be the main thing. See, and anything else is just an idol that we've allowed to take God's place. 
And I'm afraid there's some of us, maybe you personally, maybe me personally, that we've made this physical sanctuary, the church itself, the songs that we sing, and even the Bible that we read from. And we listen to this man on Sunday mornings, and we've made it all an idol because we got lost in the shiny glitter of here. And we forgot to look past this. We forgot to look that there's something greater than this. And so if we're going to move to worship, we have to move past this physical place and past the physical parts of the sanctuary. We have to move to a sanctuary that is, that is designed to point us somewhere else. We have to move to a sanctuary that was not made by human hands and a heavenly sanctuary that's presided over by Christ Himself. You see, if you've settled for church, you've settled for the wrong thing. If you've settled for a Bible study, you've settled for the wrong thing. If you've settled for the Bible... You've settled for the wrong thing because it's beyond that. All of that is to get you to God, to get you to Christ, which brings us to the second comparison of these two sanctuaries, that the earthly sanctuary really did, was designed to limit your access. It was really inaccessible, while the heavenly sanctuary is completely approachable and open to everyone who wants to enter it. See, I told you the sanctuary of the tabernacle had two rooms to it. The first room was the holy place, right? And there was only certain people that were allowed in the holy place, right? We can go back and we can look at uh, this passage in chapter 6 that tells you this is where it was at. The, the, there was only one place that they were allowed to go, right? And so in verse 6, it says that there all this arrangement of furniture that he talked about in verse 5. He says, when these things are set up this way, the priest entered the first room repeatedly performing their Ministry. So every day, priests would have to go in and out of the sanctuary. They'd have to make sure there was oil for the lamp to be working and burning. They'd have to make sure that um, everything was cleaned and polished. And so there were constantly priests going in and out of this first room, this sanctuary, right? This holy place. And if you're thinking, you're like, well, that doesn't sound inaccessible. I mean, if you've got people going in and out of it, then obviously it's not too inaccessible. But the problem is the qualifier of that statement. Because notice who goes in repeatedly. The priests go in repeatedly. Every day. Okay? Now I want you to understand, for them, this is not just a room. This is the close to they're going to get. The only place closer to God is across that curtain, across that line. Right? But this is only for the priest. Now, to be a priest, you first had to be male, which cuts out half the nation of Israel right there. You also had to be born of the, born of the tribe of Levi, right? which takes out 11 twelfths of the other tribes, right? So 11 twelfths of your nation, plus half of that, so really 1 24th, if you want to do some math this morning, 1 24th, at best, is allowed to go in this place. That's it. And that's only the, that doesn't include the ones who were excluded for, for physical limitations or, or things like that. So at best, 1 24th of your nation was allowed to go into the first room, right? And so what that really tells you is that's as close as the, you're allowed to get. So for me and for you and, and, and for all of us who are not born in this tribe, we're not even allowed to get that close to God. We're stuck on the outside looking in, hoping those guys on the inside are doing things right because they're the ones who get that close to God. But we're all stuck on the outside. And then he goes on to tell us that the second room and it has even more limited access to it in verse 7. And in verse 7 it says, But the high priest alone enters the second room, and he does this once a year, and never without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. You see, the second room was where the presence of God was. The second room was where the mercy seat was. And who has access to it? One person. One day a year. 
And I'm going to be honest with you, if you go back and read the rabbinical teachings, that this one person who got to go into this one room, he didn't go in there and hang out. He didn't go in there and party up. He went in there, he did his business, he did his duties that he was supposed to do, and he got out of there as quick as he could. And then he had a party with the rest of his friends that he didn't die while he was in there. You see, they were terrified to be in the presence of God. That's how holy it was. Why? Because He is holy and we are sinful. And so there's this huge wall of separation between us and Him. And so the whole message of the tabernacle and the whole message of the temple is the holiness of God. And yet you are separated from Him because of your sins. And there were literally walls and there were literally curtains. And at times there were even guards who made sure you didn't get any closer to God. The message of the Old Testament was clear. God is holy and you are not, so you need to stay away from Him. And if you do get near Him, you better get near Him with fear and trembling. That's the message of the Old Testament. That is why we say the presence of God was inaccessible in the Old Testament because only one person, one day a year, got to go in there and they sure didn't enjoy their time in the presence of God. But He tells us, as he goes on, that things are going to be different because in verse 8 he says the Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place had not been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. Do you hear? He's telling you there is a way for all of us stuck on the outside, for all of us that get to just hear about what happens on the inside, for all of us who are never going to witness and never going to be in the presence of God, there is a way. But it hadn't been revealed yet. When this temple and this tabernacle was standing, you see, we just still get to be on the outside until verse 11. But the Messiah has come. And then verse 12, he tells us, He entered the most holy place once for all, not by the blood of goats or calves, but by His own blood, having attained eternal redemption. Jesus entered the presence of God one time, and when He did, He allowed all of us to have access to God. Jesus enters into the presence of God, not in this earthly tabernacle, but enters into the presence of God when He dies in the crucifixion. And so Matthew chapter 27, and Matthew's telling about the crucifixion. He's telling about what happened when Jesus was hanging on a cross and when Jesus was dying. And He tells us that with His final breath, when, when He finally breathed and He gives His Spirit over to God, and He says, it's finished, it's all done, that He goes into heaven. In chapter 27 of Matthew, verse 51, says when it's all said and done, the crucifixion is done, the death is over. In verse 51, He says, suddenly the curtain of the sanctuary was split in two from top to bottom, and an earthquake and rocks we're split. I want you to understand the beauty of this moment that when Christ died, when He breathed His last breath, the first thing He did when He got into God's presence was turn around and rip the dividing wall between God and us. He turned around and ripped the curtain that said, you're not allowed to come in here anymore. What He did was He turned around and He says, don't go away. Come. It's open. Come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Draw near to God because I've opened up the curtain and I've opened up all that you said that you couldn't do and I've opened up the access and so you're not stuck on the outside anymore looking in. You get to come in because I made the sacrifice for you. Are you still a sinner? Yes. Do you still deserve to come here? No. But because of what I did for you, you can be covered in my righteousness and I'm ripping open the, the, the barriers between you and God. And so now there's nothing that stands between us and God Himself. Do you understand the beauty of this moment? That for our whole existence, we've been told we've got to stay away from God. And all of a sudden Jesus says, no, 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 don't stay away, come. 
come now. Come one, come all, come everybody, come to the Father, come to me through, excuse me, come to the Father through me. I'm ripping this curtain open so that the whole world knows that you don't have to stay away, that you don't have to be separated from God anymore. This is the access. The message of Christ is that God is now approachable and He is the way through the cross to get to Him. We don't have to turn and run from Him. We don't have to be separated from Him. We have access and He is approachable to us over and over and over again. In fact, at least three different times in the book of Hebrews, He tells us, draw near. The desire of Christ's heart and the, God, the desire of God's heart is not that you be separated. It is to come to Him. And His death opens this curtain, changes the separation, and says, come to Me. And there's one final comparison between this earthly sanctuary in Jerusalem and the heavenly sanctuary of Christ. And simply this, the earthly sanctuary of Jerusalem, it only dealt with our external behaviors. It never did anything for our internal inclinations to sin. And it never did anything for our internal morals or our motives. You see, in verse 9, he describes these limitations. He says, talking about the temple in verse 9, he says, this is a symbol for the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshiper's conscience. He goes on in verse 10. They are physical regulations that only deal with food, drink, and various washings imposed until the time of restoration. What he's telling you is, listen, those sacrifices are important. They serve a purpose, and their purpose is to, to remind you and to be mindful of sin. And it is almost to the point of, of training you to not sin again. But it never did anything for your conscience. It never made you want to not sin again. It just made you not want to get caught sinning again. See, did you notice what he said in that passage? That if, if I sin and I knowingly sin, I have to bring a sacrifice to the temple myself. But if I don't do it on purpose, if I do it in ignorance... If I mistakenly do a sin, then that's the high priest's job. He gets to go in there once a year, and he does the sacrifice for all my sins I did in ignorance. Right? For the things I did, but I didn't really mean to do them. You see, that's physical, external behavior. Right? What, what he's trying to get us to do is, listen, don't sin, because if you sin, this is the price you're going to have to pay. Don't sin, because there's, there's something you're going to have to do to do it. It becomes inconvenient for me. I have to give up one of my animals. I have to do the sacrifice. It, it's hard for me. And so all of this is external, and all this is, is changing my external behavior. But the problem is that none of that penetrates our heart. None of it gets inside of us, and none of it really changes the desire to sin. You see, it might correct our external behavior to a point, but it never changes our internal desire not to sin in the first place. See, that's where verse 14 comes into play. Verse 14 shows that the only thing that can change our desires is the blood of Christ. Verse 14 says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You see, the blood of Christ doesn't just change my behavior. It changes my desires. The blood of Christ makes me want to sin less than I did before. The blood of Christ is the only thing that makes me want Him more than I want the sin that the world is putting out in front of me. It is the only thing that changes my internal inclinations to sin in the first place. When I look at the sacrifice that He made, 
It makes me want to serve Him first. When I look at this cross over here on my left and your right, it is a constant reminder of what sin did and the cost of sin that I didn't pay and I'm not punished for. But you know what I do when I look at that cross? It's a constant reminder that I don't have to, but I want to follow Him. It is the constant reminder that I want to stop sinning because this is what sin did. And anybody who's willing to do that for me deserves the best from me. And so my inclination, my desire is to serve Him, not because I have to, but because I'm so grateful for what He did for Him. It's what makes me turn from my sins, which are the dead works that produce nothing but death and me and those around me. It's what makes me turn from that to His righteousness. It's what makes me turn from sin to serving the living God. You see, it's His sacrifice that changes me from a slave to sin, living with this life of remorse and regret, always looking back and always saying, man, I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I hadn't done that. I wish if I had to do it over again, I would have done it this way. You see, His sacrifice allows me to break all of that apart instead of living in remorse of what I did, live in expectation of a way to change that. So instead of living with remorse and guilt, instead I'm living on this side of the cross. I'm living as a slave of righteousness. And I get to say, I want to follow Him. I want to pursue Him. And I don't want to live in remorse and guilt because that's not where I was meant to be. What I was meant to be is in Christ. And in Him there is no condemnation. In Him there is not guilt. In Him there is not the shame. And so I want to love Him and serve Him and desire Him each and every day more and more and more. So let me finish by asking you these three simple questions that we've looked at. This morning, are you lost in the luster of things that look pretty and look religious? Are you lost in the luster and shininess of religion that can never get you where you need to be? Are you honestly looking to the priest of the heavenly sanctuary? Are you listening this morning to the messages of the world and even the Old Testament that tells you to stay away from God? I love that song, Look What You've Done. It plays on K-Love all the time. And it's the voice that some of you may be hearing this morning. Look what you've done. There's no way that God wants you. There's no way that God would, would ever let you come to Him. There is no way that you think you could ever be allowed into the presence of a mighty, holy God that loves everybody. You are beyond help. You're beyond hope. You're beyond love. And then the verse of that song says, But look what you've done changes the subject of it because it's not Satan speaking to us, reminding us of all the stuff that we've done. Now it's me speaking to God and God, look what you've done. You changed everything. You took out all of those roots of sin. You took out all of those terrible things in my life. You took all the sin and shame and guilt that I had and you got rid of all of it. You are the way back. And so not look what I've done, but look what you've done. And so for some of you, maybe you're here this morning and you're listening to this message that you're not good enough and God doesn't love you and doesn't doesn't care for you. And the message of Hebrews is simply clear. He does and He wants you to do anything. He wants you to draw near to Him. And so this morning, are you listening to the message of the world in the Old Testament that says stay away because you're never going to be good enough? Are you going to listen to the priest of the high heavenly temple that says come? Come draw near to me. Come draw back to me. I am the way back to Him. And so come to me. Come to your Creator once and for all. Not because of what you've done, but because of what I've done. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're trapped In this constant cycle of trying to correct the same behaviors over and over and over again. 
You say you don't want to do something, yet you find yourselves falling back into that same behavior, and you do it, and all you feel is remorse and guilt, and you're saying, I'm never going to do that again. I'm going to walk away from it, and whether it's an addiction or, or, or a substance that you're walking away from, or even addictive behavior, or just a sin that you're doing, and you keep doing over and over and over again. And every time you do it, there's just remorse and remorse and remorse. And every time you're like, God, I've got to stop this. I've got to stop doing this. And for some of us, we're trapped in this cycle of doing something we don't want to do, and there's just remorse, and we do it again, and there's more remorse. You see, but the message of the cross is that there's power over the remorse. There is power to change the direction from the beginning instead of the remorse at the end. So this morning, are you listening to the message of remorse? Are you listening to the message that says it's here? And you can have a clear conscience by His sacrifice. What's the message that you're hearing this morning? What's the sanctuary that you have joined in this morning? Is it stuff? Or is it Him? Let's pray.